The following message by our discipleship pastor candidate, Spencer Snow, is brought to you by Together in Christ. I appreciate Tim. I appreciate the church and Pastor Scott, the whole church family, the people that we've been able to be, um, got to know, got to meet. Um, everyone has been hospitable and shown us great Christian love and care. And the, the church here has uh, opened your arms to receive us and to, to welcome us uh, thus far. And uh, we trust that our time today will be well spent together. Um, let's open up together the word of God, if you will, with me. Matthew chapter 26. I, I want to read a passage of scripture that's nothing original for the Lord's Supper. Um, but nonetheless, I trust it is still inspired scripture. Matthew chapter 26, and I will simply read to you the 26 to 29. <clears throat> Jesus is here, of course, the last supper, the last Passover. He will eat. He is there, and he says, and Matthew, of course, recording in his gospel narrative, tells us this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If you were to sit down and read the Gospel of Matthew in one uh, sitting, which you could do. The Gospels, of course, are historical eyewitness accounts telling us who Jesus is, what he did, and uh, in, in giving us much of the, the meaning, much of the meaning of, of what it all means is given to us in Paul's letters. But the Gospel accounts are biographies, historical eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is and what he did. If you were to sit down and read the Gospel of Matthew, you would know that all the way back in chapter 16, Jesus began to tell his disciples something very new. He had done miracle after miracle after miracle. And then he says this, after Peter makes that wonderful uh, profession, confession about who Jesus is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you've got it. Now here's something new. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things, that he must be killed, and that he would rise on the third day. He told them these things time and time again, and we're actually told in some of the gospel accounts that they were so afraid, they didn't even want to ask him about that. They didn't even want to bring it up. They didn't understand it. Why does Jesus have to die? But now in chapter 26, the time for all of this has arrived. He knows that he's going to die. You'll notice chapter 26 opens up with Jesus one last time saying, gentlemen, I'm going to die. I am going to go to the cross. The religious leaders are looking for an opportunity to kill him. And then the last piece is put in place, the very, very last piece. When Judas Iscariot goes to the Jewish leaders and says, what will you give me if I give him you or if I give him to you? So the stage is set, Matthew chapter 26, for the last and final act of Jesus' life. So Jesus here, beginning in verse 17, begins to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal, of course, was a special meal which reminded the Jewish people 
of how God long ago had saved his people from bondage in Egypt. And it's here at this moment, at this table, as they sit around the table, that Jesus is going to speak his last words, his most profound thoughts, I think, are poured out into these men in this last night. His last meal. Remember, whenever men are executed, they have a last meal. Jesus, before he knows he is going to be executed, takes his last meal. And who does he want with him? His best friends, Peter and James and John and Andrew. He wants to be with them. And as he sits around the Passover meal, of course, the table gets a little uncomfortable whenever he says, someone's gonna betray me, and Judas slips out, of course. But then, as we see in verse 26, he he begins to do something different, something profound, something unique. He takes bread and he takes a cup. I want to look today with you quickly in the short time that we have together before we partake of the Lord's Supper about this, we're on this theme, that the Lord's Supper is a parable itself of salvation. The Lord's Supper itself is a giant illustration of how salvation works, what it looks like, how we receive it. How is this true? Well, first of all, let's look at who's at the table. Who's at the table? Well, first of all, we find who sitting at the head. It's Jesus. Jesus. Now, if you know the scriptures, you know that the scriptures teach us that Jesus is not merely man. In fact, he's God who takes to himself human flesh. God in the Old Testament, you remember, is pictured often in scripture as a, as a fire, a consuming fire who consumes all of his foes. He is the holy one, the separate one, the the pure one who cannot look on sin. He's the, the one who destroys the firstborn of Egypt. And yet, that God takes to himself our flesh and our blood. He partook of these things, we're told in Hebrews. Jesus is God in human flesh. He's the holy one of God. And he knows these men. He's poured his life into these men. He's taught them. He's listened to them. He's ate with them. And we're told in John's gospel, a beautiful passage where it says that he loved them to the very end. He loved them. He knows that he will leave them and go back to his father. And so he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So at the one end, we've got God in human flesh. He's the host of this meal. He's hosting these men. But who are the people sitting around the table with Jesus? The disciples, sinners. How can God sit at table with sinners? How can he do it? I mean, these men are followers of Jesus, no doubt, but they're men, aren't they? It's interesting that this is going to be Jesus's best moment and the disciples' worst moment. It's gonna be Peter who thinks he's very strong that's going to show how very weak he is. He thinks he loves Jesus so much that even though James and John and Andrew and Matthew, all those guys, they're gonna fall away, Jesus, but I'm not going to because I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, you're gonna be the first one who's gonna be a turncoat. Uh, we see the disciples, we are told at the last supper that they argue with each other about who's the greatest. All the meanwhile, Jesus washes their feet. In Jesus's greatest need, we're told that all of them will fall away. 
Now, it's very easy for us as church people to think that we're quite good. And so the idea of sitting at table with Jesus, with God as sinners, can be difficult to comprehend. But, you know, the reality is, as Paul teaches us in Romans, that because you're church people, because you've grown up hearing the scriptures, you of all people should know how bad you are. You see, it's only when you've tried to be good that you realize how actually bad you are. It's only whenever you've actually tried to not break the Ten Commandments that you find I break them all the time. That's what Paul found whenever he heard the law. And that's these gentlemen. They will learn more and more that they are sinners. We, all of us, do not live according to God's law. Even people who don't believe in God's law, they don't live according to their own standards, do they? They don't meet their own standards. We're all guilty, all broken. So we have here God, holy, perfect, the sinless one, sitting at table with sinners. He eats and drinks with sinners at the table. And yet, isn't it amazing that Jesus knows that he's shortly going to be betrayed, and yet the next 24 hours, they're going to be the most important and the most difficult that any man has ever faced. He knows that everyone's going to leave him. He knows all of this. And yet, what is Jesus doing? He's concerned for them. Isn't it interesting that the very last, he doesn't say, guys, buck up. Don't you know I'm going to go die for you? The last thing you could do is start praying for me and being concerned for me. But he doesn't do that. He pours his heart into us. And loves us to the end. Not because of who they are, not because of who they will be, but simply because he loves them. So here's Jesus, God, sitting here hosting this meal around with his sinful, weak disciples eating with him. And so as the host of this meal, Jesus takes a piece of bread. It was probably a flat piece of unleavened bread, and he starts to break it. They didn't use knives. He starts breaking it with his hands. And he starts distributing it the same hands that made those 5,000 people food, he now distributes to his people, to his disciples. He blesses it, he gives it to him, and he says, take, eat, this bread is my body. Take it, it's yours, eat it. And then he takes a cup, probably was more of a bowl kind of a thing, but he, he gives thanks for it, and then he takes it and gives it to the disciples, and he says, drink of it, all of you every single one of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. Jesus is telling them my blood is going to be shed. My blood is going to be spilled for you. My body is shortly going to be broken for you. The bread and the cup itself is a picture of what? Jesus himself. So here we have God in human flesh sitting at table with sinners and what is the gift that he gives to them? Himself. Himself. And not simply himself, but himself bleeding and dying and being broken for them. Notice what he doesn't give them. He doesn't say, here's 10 principles for life and I want you to eat these and this is your salvation. He doesn't say, here's seven principles for you to have a closer walk with God. Take this. this isn't not, that's not what the bread and the cup represent, do they? They represent what me, he's saying. Christ, crucified. His crucified, beaten and bruised, bleeding self. 
because he's about ready to atone for their sins, to take their punishment upon himself so that they go free, to pay their debt so that they don't have to pay it themselves. So beloved, whenever you take this cup and you drink this wine, this is not about you sitting there and remembering Jesus. This is not primarily about you. It's about Jesus, if I can use this phrase, renewing his marriage vows to you once again. I am for you. I give you my body. I give you my blood. Not that this magically turns into that, you see, but it's like the wedding ring. It represents everything. This is me taking your place. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all my blood, all my sweat, all my tears, I give to you. Jesus takes this bread and this cup, God at human flesh, sitting with disciples, giving them himself. And what does he tell them to do with this? He says, take and eat, drink. His body broken, his blood spilled, and he says, drink it, eat it. He freely gives us himself. But now the question is, how do I receive this gift? This is once again where the Lord's Supper is a great illustration of what it means to receive Christ. And it's as simple as eating and drinking. Not that eating and drinking itself is faith. But you remember Jesus in John's gospel will say, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no what? Life in you. He's not saying that you've got to become cannibals. What is he saying? He's saying faith is like whenever a hungry, starving person simply receives bread into himself. It's like whenever, I remember Jesus would say things like this, you're thirsty, I'm the water you need. You're dead, I'm the life you need. You're hungry, I'm the bread you need. You're darkness, I'm the light you need. It's reception, isn't it? Faith, what does faith do? It's as simple as eating and drinking. It's receiving Christ. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, guys, I'll give this to you on one condition that you don't fall away from me tonight. There are no conditions. He doesn't say, if I'm gonna die for you, you're not gonna run away from me. He also doesn't say, this is for your sins, but only if you're really, 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 really sorry. Faith is an empty hand that receives everything from God. You remember, by the way, that Paul says we're justified by faith alone, not by our repentance. Repentance should come, but it's a fruit. It's not the way we receive Christ. Faith is the empty hand that does nothing but receive Jesus Christ. It's as simple as eating and drinking. Faith, of course, is a sure confidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is to us. He gives himself to us. So Jesus is once again, beloved, offering you the gospel again. You see, I've realized a little bit in my short Christian life that I not only need the gospel at the very beginning of my life, but I really need it continuing on in my Christian life. I need the offer once again given to me, Jesus Christ. And every single time I can only do this, receive. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter four? It's not the one who works who is justified, but the one who trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly who is made right with God. 
So we receive Christ alone as a free gift. And the Lord's Supper is a picture to that, of, a, of that to us as well. So we've talked about who's sitting around the table. We've talked about the bread and the cup, the representative uh, picture that it is of the gift of Christ himself. We've talked about how we receive this, but what is the point? What's the great blessing that's given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what's the, the blessing that the Lord's table is meant to remind us of? Well, what does Jesus say? Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood that begins a new covenant, a new relationship with God. Now, all of us here have some relationship with God, even if you don't think you do. Every single one of you have a, I might even call it a personal relationship with God. It's either a good one or a bad one. It's either with him as your judge or with him as your father. It's either with him as your condemner or him as your savior. But you do have a relationship with God. The reality is, is that my relationship, if I just go with what Spencer Snow has done, my relationship is bad. And your relationship is bad. The Bible says that all of us are lawbreakers. All of us have the sentence of guilt over our heads, whether or not you feel it or not. Condemned, deserving of eternal punishment to pay the debt that we owe. But Jesus here is telling his disciples that his blood is going to set up a new relationship with God. And it's not one based upon you do this and you receive. The relationship is this. I forgive all of your sins. It's grace. I pardon you. His blood is going to pay the debt that sinners owe God. And what was that great promise of the new covenant that we read about prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 34? What was the great promise that the writer to the Hebrews wants to emphasize to us? It was this promise. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Perfect relationship with God. Isn't it interesting that you and me, no matter how hard we try, we cannot get rid of feelings on our own of guilt and shame. I think it's interesting that in a world that really wants to deny God and wants to deny moral standards and absolutes, we live in a guilt-ridden age. You want to talk about, uh, I've never seen a generation that demands so many apologies. Isn't it interesting that in a world of people who say they have no law, but everyone has to apologize for everything, we all realize that there's a standard out there and we have not met it. We can't get rid of the guilt. We can't get rid of the shame. We can't get rid of the feelings that I've done something inexcusable. Oftentimes you and I, C.S. Lewis is really helpful in this. I read an article on forgiveness by him and he points out that oftentimes when we go to God and ask for forgiveness, if we're not careful, sometimes what we're doing is asking God to excuse our sin, not to forgive it. We're trying to figure out all the ways in which we really didn't do this or that. But you see, forgiveness is just forgiving 
and pardoning the inexcusable. You and I are inexcusable sinners. No matter how nice you are, no matter what you do, our guilt remains. But the truth of the gospel is this, Jesus died on the cross and he paid our debt. And so everyone who receives him is forgiven by God of all their sins. God, if I can put it this way, offers amnesty to every single one of you. He offers pardon, absolution, forgiveness, release from all of your debts and your obligations to him. The, the scriptures use different metaphors. Uh, Psalm 51, you remember David's prayer, God erases our sins from the record book. He gets rid of them. He casts our sins behind his back. We're told that he removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. We're told that he promises to remember our sins no more, that he casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And notice the forgiveness of sins is rooted in what? His work, not your feelings. Jesus died, therefore we are forgiven. How can I know God will forgive me? Well, did Jesus die? It's not rooted on whether or not you feel it. It's whether or not you receive it, whether you're placing your confidence, not in my feelings, not in my good works, not in all the things that I want to be proud of. But that 2,000 years ago, outside of Jerusalem, there was a perfect man and he went to the cross and was beaten and bruised and shamed and took my place. And God just says, it's yours. And Jesus says, take me, I'm yours. I'll take all your sin and you can have all my righteousness. You're forgiven. We are clean, beloved. We are pure. Isn't that what, we, we sing that old hymn, Lord, make me whiter than snow. Now wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Forgiveness. Not because of who we are, but despite who we are. Lastly, Jesus doesn't simply close the Lord's Supper with this wonderful promise of forgiveness of sins, but very lastly, in verse 29, he points us to a future hope, a future anticipation Jesus says this in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's interesting, Jesus, if you, if you look at the, the original, this, this is the strongest way that he could ever say, I'm never gonna do something. You could say this, I tell you, I will not, I will never ever in a million years drink again of this cup. I wonder if Jesus was holding the cup as he said that. I don't know. I'm never gonna take that again until I'm with you. If I can put it this way, Jesus is not gonna start the party without us. He, he forgives us and welcomes us back despite all that we've ever done and despite the fact that as the as this hymn writer says, right, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the throne of God, he to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. I wasn't looking for God, but he found me and he brought me to himself. And the Christian life is so much the same way. We keep wandering here and there. Lord, keep my heart and guard it. Take me 
I entrust myself to you. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to drink of this again until that day when it's new. Even though we're forgiven, actually, that's whenever the hurt really kind of starts settling in, doesn't it? Isn't it very interesting that in Romans, the real experiential hurt that Paul feels happens in chapter 7. He's a believer, but then he says, I know I want to be good, and I try because I want to please God, but then I realize I'm horrible. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. As he says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Jesus is pointing us to the future, beloved, because this table not only points us backwards to the cross and to our present preservation, in him, but it points us forward to that day when all things will be made new, the time when we will once again sit around the table with Jesus. Now, Jesus, I fully believe, is present here today. You don't see him, but he's here by the power of the Spirit. But there is coming a day when he returns, when we will sit at table with him and we will see him. And we will be made like him. And we will experience what we know by faith now that we are the children of the living God. That we are clean. Because there's a lot of days I wake up and I don't feel clean. But I am clean and we will feel it perfectly that day. We will know it. Everything is going to be the way it should be. And that great promise, I love it. When I drink it, but not simply when I drink it new, but when I drink it with you, you're gonna be there. If you're resting upon Jesus Christ, if you receive him, you are going to enjoy the blessings of eternity with Jesus. So the Lord's Supper points us to a new and a redeemed and a renewed world to a better time than now. To a time when we have been raised from the dead, when the presence of sin is completely gone and eradicated, when there is no night but only day, when there is no death but only life, when it's only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when we experience perfect and lasting fellowship with Jesus Christ and with God as our Father forever. The Lord's Supper is cram-packed. And so as we partake of it today, this is primarily about Jesus Christ sent from the Father renewing his vows to you. What is our response? We have a response. It's to receive him, to thank him, and to express our gratitude for everything he's done for us. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, we thank you so much that you died the death of the cross so that we don't have to go there. We thank you that you took our place and bore our shame so that we don't have to hold our heads down low anymore, but in your presence, we can come boldly, not arrogantly, but confidently knowing that you are our father and we are your children. You are our God and we are your people. You are the shepherd we are your sheep, and we are yours. Bless these dear people. Bless this supper, this feast, 
We pray that Jesus Christ would be spiritually present with us, that the Holy Spirit would draw us near to him as he draws near to us. For Christ's sake, amen. You have been listening to a message by our discipleship pastor candidate, Spencer Snow, from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.